This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Max. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. Yeah, enjoying uh, just life in general. Everything is good. Everything is, is well. That's nice. You? I'm good. I, I just got back. Actually, I was at Construct 3D over in Brooklyn yesterday and the day before. And it was uh, a really fun time, actually, that we had. Okay, so, good, um, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah, it's awesome, fun stuff. Who do we have on the 3D pod today? Well, today we've got Carrie Stevenson. And Carrie actually, well, actually worked in insurance and the CT was a CTO of some really, really large insurers. Uh, um, and that's a really different career path uh, to, to people we normally see here. Uh, but he did something really interesting like 15, nearly 16 years ago. And that was that he founded Fabaloo. So he sounded uh, one of the first, if not the first, uh, 3D printing blog. I think maybe even the first. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, I'm sure we can talk about that later. And he's been blogging on and off about 3D printing since then. So uh, we thought we'd, uh, you know, that's that's a really, really long time now by now. And then and we thought it'd be interesting to, to get uh, Kerry's kind of overview of the industry and the, all this time he's been analyzing and writing about it. So uh, welcome to the show, Kerry. Hey, good to be here. So, so first off, like, okay, it's about nearly 15, nearly 16 years ago, around 2007 or something, you were like, why did you all of a sudden decide to start a 3D printing blog? What was the thing that inspired you to do that? <laughs> yeah, what did well, you see? In, I was uh, a CTO of a big multinational insurance company, and, and my role was to introduce new technology to the company. And in that role, I would be exposed, to, I'd be seeking out all kinds of new technologies and uh, 3D printing is one of them among many, um, but uh, being in a big conservative industry like that, it was very, very difficult to get any of these ideas implemented, and it was kind of frustrating, actually. So just out of creative frustration, I decided to just start blogging about um, one of the technologies that I'd been seeing, um, just you know, on the weekend, part-time kind of thing, just for fun. Uh, but it was, um, it was a kind of a, a crazy thing, uh, because it was so different from what I was doing. Um, what I did was I, I looked through all of these technologies and I found one that nobody was doing and that was 3d printing. So I just started writing and didn't really know too much about it at the beginning, but over time you, you learn. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and 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 was there like a particular article, a particular moment? Was there really a moment where you thought this is really break? This is what I'm going to devote that much time to, or did you just kind of gradually fall in love with it? Once I, um, you know, I started writing like one story a week, and uh, and then it was two, and then it was five. I think we were up to about thirty at one point. Now I'm doing about twenty to twenty five stories a week uh, on the topic. And we cover um, 3D printing, 3D modeling software, 3D scanning, like some of the related stuff that you need to uh, to do 3D printing. Had, had you actually seen a printer before you wrote the first article or you had just read about it or maybe seen a video? Yeah, okay. So um, you hadn't seen one. What was the first time you saw one in person? Oh, gosh. I might have seen one, but I didn't really get my hands on one until I ordered the, uh, the original MakerBot Cupcake. Oh god! Oh, but that was a fun experience. I wanted to get it to work. <laughs> yeah, right. What's your blog review on that? One? Well, so, 
so there's two, there's two answers. One was I never really got it to work. But the, the second answer is it was about 40 hours of farting around. I mean, like, cripes, you open the box and there was like wires and bolts and stuff. And, you know, it, it was a really long thing to, to get going. Yeah, and then they're... once it was put together, you couldn't extrude anything. Like my first print was just a spaghetti blob. And the reason was that I had the parameters wrong. So, you know, I'd poke around in the forums to see, you know, somebody would say, oh, I use these parameters. Okay, so I'd try them and it wouldn't work. And then I realized something really important about this whole industry is that when I built this cupcake, you know, I was doing things like winding nichrome wire around the hot end to, to, to you know, to make the hot oh. end. Okay. And I realized what if if I had done like more wines around this than the guy with the parameters, every machine is different. So the parameters can't be shared. And so that's, that's a big change that happened from those early days is now you got machines that are consistently made and therefore the parameters actually have a chance of working. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I, 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 there's so much like research out there that that, that gets rubbished because you know, these kind of inconsistencies. I remember there was this guy who, who did like his, his master's research and he came to present at Ultimaker while I was there. And then I asked like a really innocent question about him measuring the temperature, the actual extrusion temperature at the nozzle, right? And he didn't do that. And you just saw a bunch of people in the room going, oh, okay, then I just wasted <laughs> half an hour of my life on this. And the guy just like slowly realizing that maybe the paper was just trash because like, you know, you just can't tell, you know, he's just going, the, just he's imagining that the temperature of the uh, actual thing, uh, you know, the, the display temperatures is an actual nozzle temperature. And these were universal across all the systems, of course, which isn't true. So, yeah, I think it's a really good point to realize. It's good to realize it that early on <laughs> that yeah. all these things are different. Well, it took about six weeks before I could print a cube. And I think that's about the most but valuable I think that's thing. Really, that's honest of you, right? Because like that was there was this conspiracy in the beginning because everybody thought that they were stupid, maybe. I remember I was we were toying around to one of these as well. And I remember thinking like, maybe this is for me. Maybe I'm just not technical enough because I don't have a technical background. And I'm like, I, maybe I just don't understand, you know? And I, I think a lot of people just like kept their mouths shut and were just like, you know, and just thought it was them, <laughs> not the product. <laughs> The I saw a part of it that was a wood that they weren't thinking about that warping issue, but you know. The, the funny thing I noticed was that be, because of the buzz around it, it, it attracted a lot of people who really had no hardware experience. Mm. And so they, they came in with like a very different viewpoint than the, you know, the, the hardened CNC kind of techies that, that existed at the time. And, you know, we still suffer from that today where, where there's, you know, things that have been solved in the, in the machining world that really, you know, we're still working on in the 3d print world because we just came from a different place. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a good point. I think also the naivete, let's say these people really being too optimistic also led to a lot of breakthroughs, a lot of things happening that would normally, a lot of people started companies that would have normally have not started if they would have realized how daunting this challenge was. Right. Yeah, when you look at uh, you know the the uh, the slicers and there's hundreds and hundreds of parameters, how could you possibly get them right? Like that takes a lot of thought to try and figure out. Like, well, how how do you approach that problem? How do you make a profile that works? And and how do you deal with all these different materials? And there's more materials coming out every day that have different parameters. It's it's an enormous challenge. 
And what did you, what kind of printers have you had after that? Did you have a little bit like, have you kept buying them or did you keep getting review copies all along and they seem to get better or what did you do? Uh, probably a combination of both. You know, I've, I've had, uh, oh goodness, I'm just looking around the room here. I probably got about um, 15 or so printers here. Um, a lot of them are just sent over for review and, and you know, it's, it, they're too, uh, too cheap to, to bother to send back. So uh, they just end up here and I, I usually donate them to maker spaces or, you know, worthy people. Um, is, was there one desktop printer from all of those, from those early days that was the first one that you played with that you're like, ah, this just works. Yeah. Like the uh, Prusa Mark II was, was certainly uh, that, um, you know, it, it actually produced good quality and, and did not break as much. Um, and that and that continued until I installed the uh, multi-material unit on it. Basically, right, destroyed the machine. That was oh my god! <laughs> that was the single worst piece of hardware I've had to, to work with um, on these three D printers. It was so difficult to get that thing calibrated, and it it ne never worked properly. So, but I hear they're coming out with the MMU three. So I'm I wrote a story about it the other day. I'm I'm a little skeptical because of my previous. Uh, burn uh, with the MMU too. Fair enough. <laughs> and, 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 and is there a point where you saw a printer that you thought was good enough? Cause to me so far now, well, apart from like maybe like something like an S five or seven or something, most of the main, they're getting a lot better and I'm a huge, like kind of at the moment, I'm a huge fan uh, of the bamboo lab system and stuff. We're getting there. Are you, are you getting that impression as well that we're getting? It's not yet a toaster for things, but we are getting closer to it being an actual usable thing, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely true. Uh, particularly with the the AI developments lately. But you know, like you posed the question, kind of like a yes or a no. But in fact, I think it's more of a spectrum. Um, you know, like I've I've seen these machines come out, and and years and years ago they were just incredibly awful, and you know just compare them to the machines of today and it's, it's no comparison. Um, I'll, I'll get machines, um, you know, last month I'll, I'll crack open the box. I'm, I'm printing like instantly out of them with good quality. And for some people, that's probably good enough. Um, for other people, like, you know, if you're making aircraft parts or something, that's probably not good enough. But I think as the machines gradually get higher quality, higher performance, and lower cost, the the number of people that they are good enough for grows and grows and grows. Yeah, I think that's a good point to make. It's a really good thing. I mean, and also, and also the specific groups. We're seeing more printers now aimed at really specific groups. So you're getting more like for the office, and then yeah, a certain price point for the office. A certain thing makes sense. I think that's a really good point. By the way, the the first I was thinking that question about like which is the first good printer or the printer from that period that's good. And to me, it's, 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 there's this machine kind of like the Orca uh, from Camille Hubbles, I think his name. That was a really good machine. And then there's, there's a couple of these other machines that have kind of got lost. So I, 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 I just realized we always accept, we always expect like the good machines to win. But I think, yeah, yeah I think but they we, that isn't always the case. <laughs> yeah, it's not just the technology that's at play. It's it's the competence of the management and, you know, can they can they organize supply chains properly? Can they do marketing? Like you, you need all of the things firing properly in order to be successful. Some successful companies that have not great technology, but they got good other stuff. 
Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I mean, we see we saw that especially with companies scaling up that a lot of you know three times in a row the biggest desktop three D printer company in the world faltered and then kind of tended to disappear. Went from let's say fifteen thousand to five thousand units down again uh, in in a year or two, just because in that may, uh, may medium phase and like critical phase in twelve two thousand eleven to for fifteen, where they went from twenty from twenty thousand units back down to five thousand just because they had manufacturing problems because they didn't control them. And they did simple yeah, stuff. I remember one uh, company, uh, Solidoodle, that was uh, uh, yeah. quite notable back then. But then they just died because of supply chain issues and they, they couldn't manage it properly. Yeah, that's exactly one of the ones I was thinking of uh, as well. It, it, that was a really solid system. It was well engineered for the time. It was actually really good. It was like a, a you know, it wasn't, it was never amazing, but it was, it was like kind of like, like, you know, it was at the price point it was at the time. I thought it was, uh, I was really quite happy with it actually. But these days I see like a kind of a bit of an earthquake change with these high speed devices coming out at low cost now. Um, you know, for the past, I don't know, 15 years, all of the desktop machines have been, you know, speeds of like 40 to 80 millimeters per second. But now we're seeing suddenly machines with, you know, 200, 250, even 500, 600 millimeters per second. And you know, the Asian manufacturers I'm dealing with, I, I see they're all coming out with this this kind of stuff too, even at the lowest levels, um, at lowest price points. And that's that's a big deal because, you know, some of the manufacturers that had been competing in that space, they had moved on to the professional space. Um, and, you know, they could then have the, the revenue flow to, to make, you know, big, fast machines. But now there's fast machines appearing at a lower price point. So I'm kind of fearful for uh, some of these companies. They, they've got new competition has arrived due to the, no. uh, the tense competition at the lower oh, end. It's, is it, you're primarily seeing new companies coming out with these super fast, faster. Well, no, like, you know, like Creality's come out with, with uh, fast machines and, you know, maybe they're not the absolute best machines, but, you know, I've seen a, a very steady progression of technology in these companies, even in the past like two or three years, the machines just get better and better. And now they're faster. They got AI going in them. Um, you know, if you're making professional machines, you better look out because these guys are coming. Yeah. I, th I think, that's a, and I think the, the, the bigger point to me always was we were kind of stuck in a rut where people were making like $180 Prusa clone and then adding stuff to it. Right, they were just basically making the same value engineered Prusa clone and just making, you know, putting a camera on it or making it bigger or whatever, you know. And everyone just kind of stuck there. And then all of a sudden, you saw people like you said get more ambitious. And then I think the Bamboo Lab system came out. And then all of a sudden, people realized that you know, with a full software suite like things like lidar and cameras, and especially if you had lidar and cameras feeding that settings information back into the software back into uh you know the the headquarters as well and being able to optimize that settings uh behavior and doing things that people i don't think ever really thought about and stuff like uh you know software-based uh vibration uh compensation this kind of stuff that whole package made people kind of reimagine what a desktop printer could be and then yeah and that is a really powerful package you know for for going forward i think that is a big threat to a lot of the pro people <laughs> Yeah, it is indeed. And and it's I think it's more than just desktop too, because some of the innovations that, that are happening on these desktop machines are probably a clip applicable to industrial machines, professional machines. 
you know, some of those things are already there, but sometimes not. And the momentum at the low end is just so high that, um, you know, I, I view this as not really a split between desktop and, and you know, industrial machines. It's There's this core technology that just gets implemented all over the place. You know, like for many years we had, uh, you know, FDM was like an industrial machine, but then suddenly it was a desktop machine as well. Um, so I, I see this as more of a mushy environment where, where technologies kind of slide around over the long term. So, you know, th- this is why I see this professional market going to get slowly eaten away by these lower cost guys. Yeah, yeah totally, totally. And think, and, and think about like having, uh, you know, Bamboo Labs are similar, like the Corality system. Imagine having 200 of those for a university, right? We're getting a lot of, like I'm testing uh, these systems at the moment and we're getting a really high yields, really high reliability, repeatability off of them as well. And like, like unexpectedly high, I think. Um, and you know, so, so, you know, if you were like a university now, I would say, Oh, well, this is something you can consider. Whereas this wasn't something a couple of years ago, I would tell people. And if you were like saying, I'm looking at a manufacturing solution, for example, for using FDM and really I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, like my, my, my default thing is either we make a, a custom printer or, like we buy bam, a whole bunch of bamboo labs, and that's something I don't. I don't think I would have contemplated. I would have said a couple of years ago, maybe buy a whole bunch of S fives. Right, that that could have been the case of getting the Ultimaker printers about five thousand to, to seven thousand. That would have been, but I would have never contemplated getting a thousand dollar printer. Uh, you know, with all those doohickey stuff. Um, you know, but the the yield and reliability there that you know we can produce extra and throw away stuff, and it's still. Uh, you know, so much more valuable because it's so much faster than the existing systems. That's right, because speed is, people think about it often as a sort of an individual statistic, but but if you're making things, like if a machine is five times faster, that's almost like buying five machines at once. And so if you're a corporate buyer that needs like a hundred, um, you know, machines, well, may, maybe I only need to buy three, 30 of these other machines and by the way they're cheaper too and better quality yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so, so yeah that, that's another thing I, I haven't seen that before i mean before the question was you can get an original pre-producer research producer like really dial it in and you can get a really really good result on it and and that's as well we can get that we said we, we you know the producer is the most tweakable solution in there so if you have some people running around that know what they're doing you could actually make you know like like really high volume parts with these things um and now we're saying like, you know, there's another option as well. So, so I, I really hope that this makes a lot of manufacturing possible, more B-sided parts, cheaper parts, maybe not the saddle of the bicycle, but maybe the inside of the saddle, you know what I mean? That kind of stuff I think is, I'm really, really very excited about. Indeed. So yeah, I, I see lots of these array solutions uh, coming forward to, to make parts like that. Cause there's, I think a lot of latent demand for that uh, as soon as industries discovers it. So I, I'm, also then interested in some of the management solutions for handling these these big farms of machines and there's a few solutions out there now you know Bruce has got one and there's some guys in uh, Vancouver called 3dq that that have a really cool um, AI powered farm solution as well and I think there'll be others um, but yeah. that's that's the kind of stuff that that we're going to see a lot more of yeah, I hope so as well because I, I just think it's, it's seen, 3DQ. I love 3DQ by the way. I think they're really sympathetic and nice as well. And the solution sounds good. Um, 
Um, but the, the idea, what I like about this is that, that the business model is so beautiful. You just sell this to a university, they pay you a monthly fee, and they'll pay it forever, you know? Yep. Uh, and there isn't really an open source alternative thing now. There's some more Ultimaker kind of stuff that could do something like this. And I think pretty much like the people like Bamboo Labs and the new Creality kind of more software-heavy solutions will probably come up with this stuff as well because I think that's a it's a beautiful revenue source. And and to me, the key thing is here is 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 if you're traditionally you wouldn't have no idea what's being sliced and what the settings are, or you might be know that but you wouldn't know how successful the print is. But if you have lidar and a camera on your printer, you can actually uh, evaluate how successful prints are, right? At what settings? So I think that that, that would, that's a wonderful thing. And compared to what your initial situation that you described, where no one knows the variables and there's all these settings, that that could really yeah. be, be the solution. Yeah, my my ultimate fantasy is is I have a printer, I put on a random filament, and then the machine goes through a procedure to figure out by doing some test prints and and measuring through lidar to to dial itself in. And uh, then you go. That would be the end of print profiles, but uh, entry to a new world of being able to make anything. Blasphemy. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you think that it's really funny? Because first, we really, okay, I think maybe you were guilty of this. I was guilty. We thought 3D printing would make everything in the century. Then we said, oh, it's going to be a part of the business process. Now it's getting better, but then in very specific niches. That's kind of where everybody is at the moment. But do you think this this desktop thing is it gonna? Because no, now everybody thinks, oh, desktop it never worked or it didn't work back then, so it's never gonna work. Or do you have? Are you a little bit more hopeful about the desktop three D printing revolution uh, once more with feeling on site? Well, I'm I'm kind of with you there. Like it, the desktop idea kind of died. You know, back in like 2014, it was being ultra hyped, I, I think in large part to drive up stock prices for short-term gains for some people, but, uh, uh, you know, and I guess that worked, but once people realized that, uh, you know, these things are unreliable and not as cheap as, you know, other household devices and, and the complexities of, of using them. And most importantly, the lack of content, um, that's a problem. Um, you know, today's technology is probably technically capable of doing useful things, uh, but the content is still locked up. So, for example, if the knob on my dishwasher breaks and I want to print another one, I can't because the CAD file for it is in the possession of the dishwasher company and they are not giving it out because they want me to go to the reseller and pay, you know, $49 for the replacement knob until that kind of business model is broken. Uh, then we'll never see that kind of content show up at, at home and, and, and do useful things for people. You know, otherwise you're left with people designing their own dishwasher knobs and well, how, how many people can do that? Like not very many. So, so, but, but is that an issue of the software, the CAD software, or is that an issue of the manufacturers not like sharing the files? I mean, I think they, right, they've like, got a cash which, cow. Which one's going to happen first? Keep it. <laughs> right. Why would you, from a, from a, as, as someone who makes a product, a physical product, I'm not incentivized to like give out the files. Um, so wouldn't it make more sense to just work on the software and making it easier to make these things from a, well, from a home yes. user standpoint? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I've, I've seen this content problem for many years and I've always been looking for solutions and, you know, you'll see people come up with like an even simpler CAD program, but 
Honestly, even the simplest ones are just way beyond the general public. Uh, but I, I have been seeing glimmers of what the future might be. And it's this uh, technology called text to 3D. Uh, it's kind of like text to image, uh, except instead of an, an, an AI system. system. Yeah, yeah. So um, I've been trying some of them and uh, they're really crappy right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, but, as they should be because they're brand new. Yeah, so, like, but you know, but like they're, what happens, but they're, they're, if the sheer fact they're able to generate a file is actually impressive to me. It's astonishing. Like, you know, yeah. I, I'll say like, um, you know, give me a cowboy riding on a giraffe and I, I get that model and I could print it. Like, that's pretty amazing on its own. But, you know, is I want to be able to say like, you know, make me a dishwasher knob for this particular model. And right. it should be able and to, do need that. to understand what the heck that means. Yeah. So, but, but you look at the training for these AIs, like, you know, they're, they're training on pictures of cowboys and giraffes or something. What happens when somebody feeds the McMaster car catalog through that and trains on that? Then we have something very interesting. Although then you're also running into a copyright and like, you know, potential patent infringement zone, an IP infringement zone, right? Yep, that's true. Although for common <laughs> things, you know, like a, a bolt, an M5 is an M5. You sure, know. an M5 is an M5, and a yeah, and it would yeah, that's fair. But if it generates the exact same switch as the one that was already on your dishwasher, that technically belongs. That design belongs to the manufacturer of the dishwasher. So, if it's the same, yeah. like if it's exactly the same. Right. Yeah. yeah. This, this is the new world we're going to be heading into. No, right? yeah, yeah. It'll be, I, I'm very interested in all of the, like the whole, the image generators, right? Like they have the Getty image logo half the time in the bottom right hand corner because it was trained on Getty images. And so it, the AI thinks that it's supposed to put that there. But the question, is it cutting it and pasting it from another image or is it auto generating that? Um, and we don't actually know. Um, so. Yeah, I think, I think these systems are, are all very early and, and what's being discovered is that the training data is really important. So like, for example, you know, there's all kinds of crazy biases and, and you know, negative stuff that comes out of some of these things now. But the proposal was, well, what if you train them like you do school children? You take them through grade school and you, and you kind of curate what you're feeding it to, to train them to be a, a rational actor. And uh, I think we could do the same thing for text to 3D. I think it'd be super exciting to to have better, more mature text to 3D stuff. That, yeah, like you said, either you know through the McMaster car catalog or something like this, just makes you know a, a copy of something or or, or extrudes something to a certain degree to work with it. You know, just you know, just like we don't actually need to design everything. You need like kind of like a universal connector guide, if you will. You know. Hole yeah. is this yeah. much, then I have a shape. Like, I don't care. I don't need the button to be, it'd be nice for the button to be the same shape as my oven button, right? But I need it to be functional more than that. You know, it needs to fit on the oven, first of all. So, my material choice and the fact it's strong enough and hot and can withstand the heat and the fact that it won't melt or break apart of my hands is actually much more important than whatever. I don't, okay, I wouldn't like it to match the other buttons, but. That's not exactly my main <laughs> top five things, you know. Uh, right, it's more than just the job. Oh, yeah, it has to work. <laughs> but I think I think that's actually really really difficult to do. I think I think that's something I did some you know, project. 
uh, for the U.S. government on this a while ago, and then and uh, we did a thing on this, and and it was actually kind of like really difficult to see how we could actually make this work. Um, but you, the- you bring up a, a really central point about George. So it's like you know we can generate a button from an image theoretically, like with artificial, but we're not going to know necessarily the size behind the button of the lever that you're putting it on, for example, or or the pad of the size of the tack switch or whatever it happens to be. So you don't know what the underside is. So you're not necessarily going to be able to mate it, you know, like make it fit into that housing or something I like that. I think that could be solved. Um, Fair. There's a, there's a thing in the text to image called the control net where you like input a picture and then that is kind of like the, um, the, the mold for the generated picture. So like you put in a picture of yourself and then you make yourself into an elf or something. But here, what we could do is you you have an app that takes a picture of the stump where the dishwasher knob was, and it's then make me a knob for this. Oh, that's cool. That sounds plausible. At least I mean, and that's also, a good point. Actually, yeah, <laughs> that sounds plausible. And also on the, on the same as okay, but you know, this AI hype was just so incredible, and there was like a, a VC feeding frenzy right going on. It was insane, right? And we we don't know where that money went. Uh, at least, you know, not publicly, but there are going to be like, there's going to be, I don't know how many uh, VC kind of backed AI startups and how much money went into these companies. Cause this is like a, the hype that I've rarely seen a hype this intense and this prolonged. And I just think that they've probably thrown buckets and buckets of money on it. So there, there, there will be much, much more development in this, in our area and lots and lots of other areas in, in the, in the months and years to come. So that, that, I'm very hopeful of that, 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 that actually solution could, could actually work. I'm with you there. Um, but you know, if, if I was running one of these 3d printer manufacturers, I'd be looking really, really hard at all of these AI things because any one of them could could sink you or boost you. And it's up to them to figure out how that's going to be used in their systems. And, you know, you, we can see some of it now with like spaghetti detectors and some of the tuning stuff. But uh, what else could we do with this? Yeah, I think so as well. I think, first of all, they're going to do it anyway because it's so trendy. Right, but uh, I think I think we don't really know where yet. I think in the design side, text to to, to print as well, or three D scanning as well, just to making the three D scans nicer, or the combination of three D scanning and kind of text to part. Right, so I scan the oven and yeah. then it, it outputs the part, and also just like kind of like in these these smart settings, kind of like that problem that you identify these parameters and these settings. Just like you know, imagine if you did like a quarter of a million test prints. And and imagine you fed back all that data. Maybe you could figure out a way to to kind of uh, do an offset on all the settings, so you knew in advance based on certain factors uh, what the the general settings would be. Something like that would already like really really accelerate a lot of stuff already. Totally agree. Yeah. 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 By the way, the the uh, AI based scanners are really cool. Um, you know, I've I've used a lot of scanners with the with testing that we've done over the years and. There's a lot of these um, photogrammetry apps that you'll see for for uh, smartphones, but uh, the one that I I really like nowadays is from Luma AI, and they use this thing called a NERF, a neural radiance field, and it's kind of like um, you know uh, how the pictures are rendered in in 3D where where they look for all the light reflections, and they kind of reverse engineer that to create these scans, and they're uncannily good. They can handle all kinds of 
stuff that would never be scannable in other other services. So, you know, I can see like photogrammetry gradually fading into that sort of a thing. Yeah, that'll be super exciting. I mean, and just scanning. I love the idea of being able to sculpt above my phone or, or something like that, or being able to you know, actually scan things in a really easy way. I, I use a comb scanner, and that was already much more intuitive, much easier. I used my iPhone, that kind of, and it was it was really really quite quick. But I can understand like that plus AI would be super mega powerful. Also on the cleanup front, right? That you would just you know automatic cleanup, just one touch, poof, you know. That yeah, where you could produce a file right away that you could then print out without having to go in and delete every triangle that doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and also just automating that kind of stuff, I think, would be mega exciting yeah. as well. But okay, but imagine like we, the software guys solve the software, or the guy, guys and girls solve the software thing, and imagine we get like a mega better thingy first because I think that's that's what we need as well for that to happen or something similar, right? What would we need? What else would we need to really make a, a desktop three D printing revolution actually work again? Yeah. I, I think one of the one of the challenges that I've seen with the uh, particularly with the Asian manufacturers is the interface to the human. Um, you know, the, these guys make pretty decent hardware now, but oh my God, the software interfaces, the instruction manuals, the online stuff is is just horrendously bad. It, it's translation errors and confusion, cultural clashes, and, and that sort of thing. Um, I, I often thought, and I've actually told some of these companies, like, like please just hire a proper uh, user interface designer and uh, you will sell more machines, like instantly, uh, because these machines are just so so cryptic. It's crazy uh, how, how, how bad some of that stuff is. Why they don't fix it. It's, it's an easy thing to do. Yeah, but it's maybe, yeah, maybe they're hardware minded and not very software minded. It's very rare to get, that's another thing about this, like this increasing complexity, these printers that are much better and everyone's trying to copy. These guys are making a much more complete system with software integrated and all that. I, I wonder about how many people are going to be able to, to, to be able to follow that, you know, and, and really be able to do software. So far, a lot of these guys have been relying on Cura or, or something else. So yeah, they just maybe are really totally hardware focused people that just maybe don't care. That's true. Um, the the desktop industry like leans really heavily on on Prusa and uh, Ultimaker to make the slicing software, but like here here's a nightmare scenario that I'm kind of a little worried about. Um, you know, as these uh, inexpensive manufacturers increase their capabilities and and start overtaking some of the professional vendors, like what happens to Ultimaker and and uh, and Prusa? Like, will they? have trouble in the future and if they do like what happens to cura and prusa slicer so i don't know where that's going maybe time to invest in simplify 3d i don't know i mean someone else will pick up like people always pick up if there's money to be made people will pick up the software right like if if that's the scenario but i hear what you're saying like it could result in the loss of some fundamental software um that everyone uses yeah. Yeah. But they're, they're generally not capable of doing very much with it. Like I've, sometimes you'll see a system come out and they'll have modified like a, a version of Cura for their own purposes. And that's what they bundle with the machine. But inevitably it's like, uh, like, you know, two or three versions old and doesn't have any of the new features and it's just really, really crappy. 
Um, yeah, and they're not offering support to it, and they're not upgrading no, it and doing all that. No, yeah. and, and like that's the best they can do. So like, there's a software gap. I think that's that's interesting. And then, do we need to do anything about materials? I mean, do we need to make them more sustainable, cheaper? What's the what's the deal there? Well, my opinion is um, we got to have more sustainable materials. I mean, I, we don't have video here, but I'm kind of looking around the room and I'm seeing like, well, embarrassingly, probably hundreds of prints of like all kinds of random stuff. And that's the stuff I've kept. Like I've also got like boxfuls of failed prints. And where does all this stuff go? It's, it's, you know, the ABS and PLA is, you know, basically not reusable in any yeah. practical sense. So it's just going to go to the landfill eventually. Uh, or ABS end up in the cycle quite, quite well. Huh? ABS, you can do seven to eight yeah. cycles mm -hmm. on ABS, but you then you end cycles. up in this brittle territory. You end up in this brittle territory, which is what black recycled plastic containers are, where it's just so brittle it like crumbles. Right. Like it is, it's, Theoretically, you can recycle these things, but in practical terms, you, you just can't. Well, that's also the, mm -hmm. I always find this interesting, like in, in injection molding, we, you call it regrind and you never go above 20 or 30% regrind because it will compromise the part. Um, and you have to, the rest of it has to be virgin material. So uh, this dream of taking filament and completely breaking it down and then extruding it again and then putting it back in a printer, it's, there's a lot of chemical changes that have just happened through that one process. Cause every time you heat it, you change the material. Um, is there a material that you see coming on the market or that is on the market that you think is the answer? Um, <laughs> I guess the answer would be no, yeah, no. <laughs> um, on the market, but I do see lots of research papers of people trying to develop some kind of properly recyclable, uh, plastic alternative. Um, and uh, eventually there's going to be one found because there has to be like, we're just making way too much plastic. And if, you know, if it's not recyclable though, it could also, I mean, compostable, like really see compostable, if you will. Yeah. Right. Biodegradable is, is, the yeah. goal. you know, a lot of people think PLA is degradable, but yeah, it's not, it is if you have <laughs> like extreme temperatures and pressures in, in a factory that is, you know, 2000 kilometers from you, like, no, <laughs> I think there's okay. one, one, one solution is like material custodianship, right? So for example, if I'm making my last run of, of ABS and I need like a picture frame, if I can find the last possible, uh, you know, the, the, the time when that, that, that multiple times recycled material is suited for that picture frame, if I can match up, you know, the properties of that material and uh, the amount of cycle runs and the settings and all this, then I can make it into a picture frame. If I make a picture frame, it could stay on the ball for a decade. That's beautiful, right? And then the next run after that, if the picture frame breaks, I should be able to say, oh, okay, I need to make it into something disposable or even like, you know, less mechanical than a picture frame. So I think that kind of custodianship would be a really beautiful thing. Um, and also just more incentive by companies to make materials that are actually kind of useful. Why would you make a material that's recyclable and, and compostable and all that stuff now? Why? Just because it's cool? Yeah. Because it makes sense in the long run? Yeah, well, okay. Yeah. But then, but, but now that people do this a little bit, there's, there's Arkham is doing stuff. There's just PHA stuff, right? That's really, that could be really exciting. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, most of the materials being developed, even the newer materials or new versions of materials are not sustainable. They don't take it into account apart from like the press release, maybe, you know? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, what, what the real way to force it on some level to happen is to 
to start for governments to start implementing laws, making, you know, that you have to phase out um, single use material like this in the next 10 years or something like that. Um, no. Not like a chair, but like packaging or filament. Um, and then you have to replace it with something else. That's often how this stuff actually happens, right? At the end of the day is like it gets mandated by a government somewhere, anywhere. Like France does it or someone does it. And then that forces the industry to change as a result. And then we actually see benefit from it. You know, in the 80s, the United States had a, an acid rain problem because of uh, all of the crap we were throwing in the air. And the industry was forced to capture all of that crap. And now they make money selling all of that acid that was going into the air previously. Oh, I didn't know that. Actually. But yeah, that was like, I remember being young and remember the acid rain thing and the hole in the ozone layer and thinking that we would solve yeah. everything. Um, <laughs> no mistake. <laughs> but, uh, so now we've all, okay, but since we're talking about sustainability, all right now we've talked essentially about desktop printing and essentially about material extrusion, right? FDM, FF, whatever we want to call it. Um, but how about SLA or stereolithography? Desktop stereolithography and DLP have been exploded in the last like two years. It's become huge. And what do you think about that, Carrie? What do you think of that? Is that, you know, is that good, exciting, or is it even less sustainable than the, the, the material extrusion stuff? So we should, we should avoid it at all costs. What do you think about that stuff? Well, I, I have a, a bunch of uh, resin printers here and uh, man, they produce unbelievably cool output. The resolution's crazy good. And, and that's one of the reasons why the um, people doing like these uh, game figurines are really adopting that stuff quickly. But the big problem with that stuff is safety. Um, these resins are toxic and nefariously so. You know, you can be exposed to them and with no effects repeatedly. And then until suddenly there is an effect and now you're, you know, permanently uh, sensitive to the stuff. I mean, I, I'm like super careful with ventilation and, and, and uh, PPE uh, when I use this stuff. And I just... Every time I do that, I keep thinking, yeah, there's some, some newbies that don't understand and they're like dipping their hands in the tank. And I, it's just, I don't Ooh. know how they're, they're going to solve that, but it, you can't make that stuff a, a big consumer product without fixing those toxic issues. Yeah, totally. Like some of these materials are carcinogenic. Uh, the photo initiators can cause a skin uh, allergy or your skin to flare up essentially every time you come in contact with it. Um, and that, that kind of stuff I think will lead to, and if you don't cure the part properly, the, the, those kind of effects could be, you know, in, in, in the part for the lifetime of the part, let's say. So yeah, I think that's a huge risk. Uh, and I've, I also tell people like if I have kids or something, I wouldn't have resin printers in my house. Uh, you know, that, that, that's simple. So I think, I think there's, un, there is not enough, um, being done, I think by vendors, uh, on this and there's not enough being done in, in communicating those, the, the procedures. Cause even that PPE thing, like my problem with the resin printers is, is that I'll wear glasses with them. I wear gloves with them, like not once, not most of the time, every time. Right. But every once in a while I'll, I'll make a little mistake or something. And then this splotch of material comes on my cheek or on my upper arm or something. Cause it's warm. And you know, so even that, if you extrapolate that over, you know, we're going to be doing this for a long time. I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, you know, that's, that could be a problem. And I think, I think that's, that's in, insufficiently uh, being addressed by the industry. Yeah. And I'm not sure if the, the solution is some kind of ingenious mechanical design that isolates the, the toxic resin from the operator or whether it's a new kind of material that just isn't toxic. 
Yeah, I mean that's the better solution at the end of the day is yeah, a non-toxic yeah. material. Yeah, and the better for the initiator, like the better for yeah. the initiator, and then also as well the non-toxic. That would be amazing. But there was a printer. I remember, I remember there was a printer with like that had a DLP, but then it had like the washing and everything and the curing in one unit, right? There was somebody working on that at one point. Oh, that was all self-contained. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And it's all contained. Then you just take out the part, and the right. part's perfect. So that as a vision, I really liked. I never knew. I didn't know if that was a Kickstarter or if that was a a thing, but, yeah, but that kind of, too, but never seemed to catch on likely because it was way too expensive. Yeah, you guys also, you're probably not even aware of this for a number of years. There was a product out on the market that was a resin hand print, like a 3d pen. Um, but it was resin. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I would, I, you know, as one of the makers of 3d pens, I would constantly say like, how are they, getting this like out and they're like, Oh, it's perfectly safe resin. And I'm like, if you have safe resin, then why are you putting it into a plaything? Because you could just transform the whole like resin market. Um, because it's not safe. That was and, the answer. Oh to the- that, was, that was the worst thing ever. I got so mad at yeah. those people and, and, and we'll not, yeah. we won't say the names so they don't sue us, but, 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 but that was really, no, it's the second worst thing ever. The worst idea ever was that, a 3d printing pvc on a material extrusion machine and having consumers do that that's like one of the worst ideas ever like that that was uh, i got so mad at them and and that was like first of all they were doing these things where, where it was like this is safer than 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 the heated nozzle of the other 3d printed pen you can't burn yourself and they were showing people putting this stuff on their skin oh my that uh, really that was one of the worst things ever that was so risky and the, the only thing that i saw that was riskier than this uh was people using pvc uh, you're doing a PVC material uh, for material extrusion from desktop 3D printers. That is like one. That is an absolutely horrible idea. There's tin. There's all sorts of carcinogenic fumes and carcinogenic materials that remain behind. There's really no way to do that safely. Um, even it's very difficult to do that safely, like in a lab type environment. And you have to kind of look like you you just participated in the movie Outbreak for that to really uh, kind of like make sense. But even then, there's so much material that behind, remains behind. It's horrible. But that that 3D printed like the photopolymer pen was absolutely horrendous as an idea. Yeah, ran away quickly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, I think it was, I was really happy that that actually died kind of at one point. The PVC material yeah. extrusion and also the the pen that somehow that didn't make it through. So that was actually that made me very very happy. I think. But but I, that I remember asking one of shows the... you that the the general public has no concept of the toxicity of this stuff. Yes. Exactly. I've, seen, I've literally seen YouTube videos of people doing resin printing and they're literally using bare hands and like picking yeah. up wet prints and stuff. I, <sighs> I just, it's horrible. I remember asking someone from form labs one time, like, do you consider the resin safe? And they're like, yeah, yeah, of course it's perfectly safe. And I'm like, Oh, so you'd let your child play with it. And their response is like, no, no, it's safe. Like paint thinner is safe. It's safe in your garage. It is absolutely not safe for a human being. <laughs> it's like ah, so uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think I, I think that's that's one issue, and I think it's a big risk for industry as well. Because uh, if at one point somebody has a problem with this, it, it might just say three D printing unsafe. We've had that a couple of times with this fumes, right? Which actually isn't right. as big a problem, or it wasn't as big as a problem back then. But now I think with TPU, it might actually be a much bigger problem. But there was a lot of like kind of like little mini moral panic. New technology, dangerous. But but. Like with the with the resins, I think of this is this is actually one of the few ex- truly existential threats to our industry. This resin safety thing. Yeah, I I could see them being banned from homes. 
Oh, totally, totally. That could, that could, uh, yeah, yeah if, I if, could see that as well. If, if Especially actual, starting in the European market. <laughs> if an actual consumer safety watchdog looked at this, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the well, there's another twist to this whole resin saying, uh -huh. um, what if in coming years, volumetric 3D printing is perfected and, and, and catches on, um, you know, where you can print whole objects in seconds or even minutes, like like a hundred times faster than, than today's printers. But all that stuff uses resin. So what happens then? And then what, the volume explodes and then it comes much faster to make them. And then that comes the break, breakthrough technology. Yeah. And then, and but it's the toxic resin again. Yeah, yeah. now you have gallons, hundreds of millions of gallons of toxic resin floating around all over the place. Yeah. Well, like kind of like the non-stick. We, we've just shifted thing. the problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tfabs everywhere. It, it sometimes is paradoxical that that would be horrible. Like the volumetric thing. If we're looking at like the million parts a day, maybe perhaps about as much as two million parts a day for um, uh, for Invisalign. That's warranted in my effect because like it's a, it's a semi-medical thing and it won't work in another way, right? But yeah, I really don't like us using resin in, in end-use parts and also just in, in, in close to the consumer, personally. So volumetric resin everywhere would be a horror scenario for me. Yeah, I, I do resin printing now and then when I have to, and it's just uncomfortable every time I do it. Yeah. But, you know, like I just completed a, a project where I was printing some uh, model railway parts for, for somebody. Holy cow, these things were so thin and so tiny. There was no possibility you could do them on, a, on an FFF machine. Um, they had to be done on a resin machine. Yeah. So here's hoping to uh, safer resin. Um, so, yeah. hey, Carrie, thank you so much for, for, for being here today. It was wonderful having this uh, conversation with you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And Max, thank you. thank you for being here as well today. Always, always an enjoyable time. Thank you, George. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. You have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.